Welcome, everybody, to our latest series of podcasts entitled In Conversation with the Big Cat People, Becoming a Photographer. It's open-ended, so we'll continue inviting guest photographers to tell us their story year in, year out. We want to gain insights into how they carved out a career as photographers, what particular skills and personality traits has enabled them to make a success of a very challenging and competitive path. Abraham Joff, ACS, is an award-winning Australian cinema photographer, director and producer, and underwater and aerial specialist. His work is known for its striking visual aesthetic and intimate storytelling. He's always been captivated by the power of the moving image and knew from an early age that this would be his life's calling. In 2000, Abraham founded the Sydney-based production company Untitled Filmworks. Untitled is renowned for their creative storytelling and use of cutting-edge capture technology. Over the past 20 years, Abraham has filmed in over 40 countries on all seven continents and is an experienced underwater cameraman and drone pilot. His landmark series, Tales by Light, on Netflix showcases both his own talent and that of some of the world's most iconic stills photographers. Tales by Light was the genesis of two seasons of Big Cat Tales that aired in 2018 and 2019 on Animal Planet, videoed in the Masai Mara National Reserve and adjacent wildlife conservancies and presented by Jonathan and Angela Scott, that's us, the Big Cat people, and Jackson Oli Lusea. Abraham had the honour of receiving the Millie Award from the Australian Cinema Photographers Society in 2017 for his work on Tales by Light, the particular episode, Darren Dew Submerged. He's currently in post-production, directing and producing on a landmark natural history series, Our Oceans, for Netflix, and a yet-to-be-announced feature film. Abe, welcome. Hey, thank you, Johnny and Angie. It's lovely to be with you. I know um, from when we chatted that you came from having uh, a company which dealt with wedding photography. So thinking stills, although of course in today's world, videography is a part of everything. But what led you to becoming a cinema photographer? Did it mean a major change of direction in your career path? Or did you know from an early age this was your life's calling? Well, Johnny, Angie, I was—I guess I was very lucky to be exposed uh, at a young age to not only cameras, uh, but also the big wide world. I had a pretty extraordinary childhood where I was taken around Australia with my three siblings for three years uh, from the ages of uh, 11 for a three-year journey uh, living on the road. And it was on that trip with a little camcorder, you know, in the, in the caravan um, that, that, that cameras were first, I guess, introduced to me. But then I was also exposed to people. The most influential for me was a fellow called um, Malcolm Douglas, who was sort of the godfather of wildlife filmmaking in Australia. In fact, was probably uh, the inspiration for Crocodile Dundee and so many others that came beyond him, fictional and, and non-fictional. Um, but Malcolm Douglas had been making wildlife films across the top of Australia since the 60s, had made over 60 films, and I grew up watching this man, uh, on his television show, Malcolm Douglas, 
um, in the wild and all, all, this, all the amazing films he made. And then I got to meet him and spend a few weeks with him living on his crocodile farm up in Broome. Uh, it's the early 90s. And so I was exposed to people who led different lives. And so for me, it was just a normal thing that people could take their kids out of school and travel around for three years or own a crocodile farm and make films. And so those were, it wasn't a, um, a strange um, idea that my life would, would be something uh, pretty different as well. So in a sense then, natural history, uh, a love of the outdoors and nature and wildlife, along with somebody like him who was recording it, those two almost were joined at the hip. And I, I think knowing you, it does seem rather like that's the case with you too. I mean, it wasn't that one came before the other, that you sort of loved nature and then just suddenly thought, oh, you know, well, I, I actually want to record it and, and, and sort of, you know, savour it again, in, so to speak. Yeah, no, you're right. They're, they're sort of, I don't remember ever one being before the other. Um, but possibly nature first, because I think my earliest memories are, uh, you know, being in the outdoors, even as a kid before, even in the bushland around Sydney. So probably that first, but, but cameras and recording came into it very, very early. And, and just the, the ability to share experiences and stories of, of people and wildlife, um, just thought was the best job in the world. <laughs> but I something I've noticed about you is you're a wonderful storyteller. So most of the films that I've, I've seen you do have been very exquisitely orchestrated and they have been orchestrated by you, not only in the storytelling, but visually. When did that, when, is that from your early days or is that something that you've developed as you've gone on? Uh, well, thank you, first of all. Um, I, I, I'm not sure, I guess, um, I think have, knowing your own voice or having your own voice is really important. And um, I, my uncle once told me, if you find something interesting, no matter how obscure it is, there'll be other people out there that also find it interesting. If you deeply, truly love something or find it amazing or interesting. And so I've always remembered that. And whether it's you know going down to film um, the orange-bellied parrot uh, in Tasmania and a, you know a, a bird with with a few hundred left. Or, or something else um, just as unusual, uh, and I've, got, I've been fortunate to have many experiences around the world through my career, um, I, I guess the more, the more obscure, the more um, um, unusual the story, the more I'm, I'm drawn to it. I think it just adds to the tapestry of our amazing world. You know, I think things that are just different, you know, we're so used to the same old stories, the sport on the telly, or the latest politics, and, and it's just, for me, I'm always looking for the things that stoke my interest and, and I'm constantly amazed at new and incredible things about our world. I mean, I, I think it's, I love the, the idea of human exploration into space. I think that is, that is very interesting, um, but I have no personal de desires if someone offered me a, a trip to Mars. Um, it would be interesting for maybe for a few days, but I think we've got so much on this planet um, that is unknown and extraordinary that, you know, that my desires don't go beyond uh, our little planet. But I think it's very, you, you know, I, I watch you um, behind a camera and you're so focused and what you seem to get out of the, the, your films when you're filming is quite extraordinary and unique. But it's the storytelling, it's how, I think where you come out on top is somehow finding the story mm. and allowing the audience to be completely drawn in, which is 
is an amazing gift, I think, which I haven't seen many yeah. times. Yeah. It was such a pleasure to work <laughs> with you. Yeah. We learned so much and, and had such fun doing it as well. Yeah. That point, Abe, of obscure, I mean, it was very apparent to me when you started talking pangolins, which are incredibly actually difficult to see. I mean, all the time I've spent, I'm not sure about Angie, but in the Masai Mara, for instance, where there are pangolins, I think the only one I ever saw was when Alan Root, the great cameraman, and Joan, his wife, had a uh, a habituated or a captive pangolin that had been rescued from somewhere, and they incorporated it into one of their sort of termite films. But it's interesting too, isn't it, how a lot of wildlife programs actually deal with the same subjects. We love mm. whales, mm. we love big cats, as you and Angie and myself know only too well, and people will say there's an inexhaustible appetite for them. But Unless should... you can bring a story. Well, no, I was thinking more in Abe's term, with his love of going the extra mile to dig out something which is obscure and fascinating and wonderful is that is that a series that you you are working on in your head of you know let's go out and actually reveal the wonders of stuff that people haven't yet been exposed to in any great way on television i mean it would be a great service wouldn't mm. it yeah i mean i think it's um well it's true as i said i am drawn to that but i think it can come also from you know familiar subjects too if you find something fascinating and fresh and new about a familiar animal or subject then that can be just as exciting as well so and so much of it you brought to me when we did our time with the big cats all the the the, the intimacy of of detail and behavior mm. that you know that brings a whole new freshness and excitement to say lions which have been filmed so much over the years, but all sure. the little things. That, so to me, I think it, it isn't necessarily that the subject has to be completely new, but I think the story has to be new. And, and that's why I think you, you shouldn't be too quick to dismiss a subject. Um, and particularly, like I've been doing a lot of work in the polls lately, and you know, these, are, these places have, can have incredible abundance, but low diversity of subjects. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking for mm -hmm. a new species to film, well, you're gonna have a real trouble doing that. So, but yes. there are always new science and new behaviors being uh, discovered. And so focusing on those uh, stories is, is what draws me in. Um, I think it's, but it's human nature, isn't it, to be, um, to be excited by f things that are new, um, I think. Um, yeah, and I'm just gonna quote you in saying, life will not be able to stop you from achieving your goal if you want it badly enough. What does that mean in relation to your career? Because you're very driven, you're passionate, you've got an extraordinary determination, you're not gonna give up uh, in terms of meeting your goal, but was that sort of determination, is that what's led you to where you are today? Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't uh, prescribe to some of the, I mean, it's had the many names, you know, uh, I guess self-realization or, um, uh, what's the word, um, you know, materializing things to think about it first. There's been so many books written about that and, you know, The Secret became really huge for a while. I don't know if you need, whatever you label it as, I think if you can't imagine something happening first, well then what chance has it really got of actually happening apart from maybe winning the lottery? But maybe even winning the lottery comes with an idea that everyone who's ever won the lottery has had the idea of winning the lottery first and then bought a ticket. Uh, you, no one's gonna buy a ticket for you and, and put it through your letterbox and oh, I've won the lottery. So I think, you know, I, I'm not sure. It's just been, maybe it's, I'm sure I am, 
we are all a creation of uh, a sum of all the parts, all the things, all the experiences and, and input from our parents and our you know formative years I guess but um, I haven't I don't give it give it a lot of thought but I, I, I guess I am fairly driven and every time something I mean I, things don't always pan out and win I mean, uh, but so many things that I have stuck my neck out and actually jumped into if I've truly believed it they more often than not are being realized and so every time that does happen it gives me a bit of confidence I think you still need to have a say in head on your shoulders and 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 you know taking risk has to be calculated um, to be more specific for some of the film projects in the past they often will begin with a uh, I guess a shooting recce to go test a subject to go somewhere new and um, particularly if it's on the other side of the world it's, it's pretty prudent to go and, and maybe try to do a short shoot somewhere and go see is this really uh, got the potential to be something bigger whether it's a series or a feature film and some of those shoots um, haven't panned out or not yet I, I, you know some of the stories haven't materialized um, yet and even though there are a few years in the past a couple of them are still there simmering away and they, they they may potentially come about and then sometimes things that do take years to unfold can have an extra special uh, quality to them um, I wish I could talk about a couple of the current projects I've got going now um, but I, I, I'm a little early maybe we can do a pickup interview in a next, in, in next yeah, year yeah. but um, with more specifics but um, but I'm, I'm always telling young filmmakers, and I'm still, I still consider myself a young filmmaker, but other people maybe just starting out on their career, uh, to, to have passion projects is so important um, to really, particularly starting out, the things that you really want to do, um, it's the cart before the horse. Are you going to be given the opportunity to go tell some story, some projects? No one's going to give that to you. Uh, how do you get the experience before, the, you know, before the, the opportunity to do it? And so creating your own opportunities even if you have a small budget and it doesn't have to be on the other side of the world, go out and actually start producing short films on subjects that really matter to you. And I've, I know people, and you know, I know this is more of a photography um, podcast, but I know people who were, that wanted to become, say, a great sports photographer, you know, working in that world or working with sort of motor, motor cars. I mean, photography and filmmaking have got so many similarities because we, mm -hmm. you literally could take any subject in the world uh, no matter how specialised that it is, and, and apply photographic skills to it, whether it's, uh, you know, gosh, scientific, microscopic photography to megafauna to celebrity uh, to fashion. You know, we really... Uh, photography, filmmaking, uh, writing, I guess, and other, other forms of creative arts can apply to any subject. And if you, if you have a passion, a co combination of passion for image capture and a particular subject, why not go out there and start telling those stories even without any budget at all? You can do that. And if it's, you know, I know a fellow who loves hot, you know, fast cars and wanted to become a fast car photographer and just started creating imagery and going to car shows and meeting people who have the cars, taking photographs, building up a portfolio until suddenly he was starting to get jobs in that field. And it can, can become a specialist in that particular field, whatever it is. So I think you know, putting yourself out there and, and, and also people want to give opportunities to people who are passionate and obviously really committed mm. to something. And if you're going to give someone a break in your field, someone who's really going out there and putting themselves out there, they're the people you want to give opportunities to. And, you know, people sometimes say, gosh, you're so lucky to get this or this person was so lucky. But, you know, I do believe in creating your own luck and your enthusiasm and energy for a subject has a gravitational pull. Uh, to other people mm. and people also want to give opportunities to people who are proving 
that interest and, and that level of passion. And you can't really fake that level of passion, I think, too. So I think it has to be real. So anyway, sorry, I'm waxing lyrical now, but there's a few little tidbits there. Yeah, and, and also, Abe, I think it, you, you mentioned something there that tweaked a thought, which I was going to ask you about, and Angie and I have talked about it. Um, you know, you're very much able, you've got great ability at, you know, multitasking in terms of being a cinema photographer. And I can remember many years ago working uh, on the American television show Mutual Omaha's Wild Kingdom. And I remember how... Peter Drown, I can still remember his name, Peter Drown, but with an E on the end of the Drown, um, was a wonderful cameraman, but he'd started as an editor. Mm. And so from an editor's point of view, this guy would deliver gold because he thought beyond just, that's a great image. Mm -hmm. Now, if you were giving advice to, to somebody getting into the business, would you say to them, start out specializing or do your utmost to try and be an editor a camera person, a producer, a sound person, yeah, like your wife, Jen, mm -hmm. I know does sound too. I mean, do you think it's the era of the specialist or do you really coming into the business and giving yourself the best chance, do you want to be right across it? Yeah, that's, that's a really, it's a really great question. Um, funny you mentioned editing. I did want to be an editor when I was a teenager making my first little films. I, I loved the edit. I loved to assemble things and I, I did for a while think I, I would maybe follow, pursue a career in, in editing. Um, but I think what it was was the constructing the story and I think great cameramen are also editors or have edited their own films because if you edit you appreciate the sort of coverage that, you, that is needed to tell the story um, and that is so crucial in, in coming back with the goods because film is by its very definition an assembly of shots so, and obviously you break that down further there's assembly of, of images you know motion is just an illusion of of repetition of still images but if we talk about it in shots a film in almost all cases is an assembly of shots there are exceptions to the rule people make single take films um, that's been done but most of the time it's the it's the assembly um, it's the montage that creates the moment and so someone it was a really great quote somewhere someone said that you should, if you're talking about your favourite shot, then you probably haven't done justice to the story because you, should, you really shouldn't be, you know, um, falling over a particular shot. It really is serving the story. And, um, and sometimes in the edit, what happens, um, anyone who's ever made any film is probably uh, will know this, particularly if they've got other importers that... Um, you know, call it murdering your baby. Sometimes shots that you thought are absolutely golden don't work for the story. Um, and sometimes, you know, there's, there's biases built into all of us that if you climb, I always sort of relate it to, if you climbed a mountain pre-dawn an hour to get up on top of a hill to shoot a particular shot of the sunrise, by golly, you're going to put it in the film because you put all that effort into the shot. But an editor looking at just the footage on, on the table doesn't have any of that built in and they just literally look for it, does it serve the story and if it serves the story great it goes in if it doesn't no it, it, it hits the scrap heap uh, and that that sort of discipline is really good because at the end of the day it is only as good as the sum of its parts a film and so it's not relied on any one particular particular shot but 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 Abe, that's that's you make me chuckle there because i i know as a stills photographer and angie and i both you know would, would empathize with this you know, you might finally, after many years in the Mara, get a lion jumping on the back of a giraffe and you're going to be so excited and you want everybody to, you know, it's just the shot. 
And yet, actually, it may not be anything more than just something that you've lived and relished and dreamed about, and you finally got it, and you put it on a picture editor's desk. Okay, if it was a lion jumping on a giraffe, they probably would say, yeah, we could use that. But it may not actually touch the requirements of what the editor is looking for, or in your instance, a shot which fits within the storytelling, mm. you know. But let's just talk a little bit because, um, you know, stills photography with its shutter speeds and aperture settings might not appeal to mainstream television audiences, yet how did you or your Netflix series, Tales by Light, I mean, you cracked it. How did it come about that, you know, it's a great title for starters. Where, where did the title come from and how did you manage to get stills photography to be such wonderful television? Because that mm. is not easy. Yeah, th well, thank you, Jonathan, first of all. Um, well, the name, um, you know, I, I'm not quite sure how we ended up on that name. Um, and I'm, I don't even know if I can take credit for the name. That was probably, um, I'm probably sure I would take credit if I could remember coming up with it. So let's let's give it to some unknown person. Um, but I think it, it, the answer is in the name. It's the tales part, you know, and it's tales first, tales by light, the story is first. Um, and then I think it's the stories within those films and it's the stories of the photographers and the subjects that they're following which is really why people are drawn in and you don't need to be a lover of photography. Uh, if the show was about very specifically this, you know, shutter speed and now we're looking at this filter, then it would be probably more of a podcast. It'd be a YouTube channel for people who are very specialized looking for, you know, there's always an audience for that and it's important those, the craft of, of photography, but um, it was more about the, um, uh, and what was made it accessible is the intentions behind the subject that was being chased and, and maybe the approach, the personal approach, if there's a lot, there's a lot of people and nature in, in, this, in the stories and both have certain sensitivities to uh, any good nature photographer will know, you know, what works and how to, how to, be, how to get, go for the shot and also, you know, respect um, nature, the subjects they're, filming, they're photographing and whether it's indigenous cultures or, um, you know, working in, in, in some really tough areas in, in Bangladesh or India, you know, they all have um, approaches to, um, to the subject. So, yeah, we, we, and again, but I was guided by two things. One, do, do these things interest me? Like, it's my uncle's sort of voice in me. Are these, um, if I find it interesting, there'll be, a, there'll be an audience for that. But also what was so, um, so much fun uh, is to go to photographers that I really respected um, and say, look, is there a subject that you've always wanted to go and do but haven't really had the opportunity to do, go do it? Uh, well, you know, I'd love to work with you and let's go tell that story. And that was fabulous to, to have that, um, uh, that offering. Um, and so, and that took us to many places that I never would have dreamt up because all of these specialist people had different ideas, you know, whether it was, whether it was going to Namibia or, um, you know, Tiger Beach uh, in the Bahamas, or, or yeah, any any number of one of the other stories. It was it was a fantastic series, um, and uh, yeah, a great time of my life, and certainly a milestone in my career. That, that that opportunity to make that series. So just you know, expand there because I think people are interested in how. I think for a lot of people, you know, they see something on television and they think, oh my God, how do you ever manage to achieve it? That how do you put that together? I mean, for instance, with Tales by Light, I know that Canon were involved in some way, mm -hmm. I know that Nat Geo were involved in some way, and then ultimately Netflix. Now, what was the process that took that idea into becoming a reality and being on television? Mm -hmm. Just get, take us through the business end of it. Where, yeah. How do you start? Where do you start? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Johnny. I mean, on, on this particular example, I mean, Canon by far were the, um, they made this possible. Yes, Nat Geo were a broadcast partner in Australia. Netflix ultimately took the series, which was incredibly flattering. It was testament to the fact that we didn't go too hard on technical, that it was story first, otherwise they wouldn't have taken the series. Um, but it all comes back to Canon and Jason McLean, who was the actual um, executive um, manager at Canon Australia, general manager um, at the time. Um, but as I mentioned before, sometimes, pardon me, sometimes having a, a recce or a, a, you know, a pre-shoot can lead to bigger things. Um, without drawing out the story too much, Canon uh, back in 2013 wanted to profile some of their photographers some of the Canon masters. One of them was Darren Jew, and the very first one actually was Darren Jew, a very celebrated underwater photographer in Australia. And for many years, he'd been going to Tonga and photographing the humpback whales. Now they, they, the assignment that I was given, which also came off the back of another little passion project, but I won't go back that far. Um, that was sort of reviewing a camera, which I did off my own back, which got the attention of Canon. So that, when I talk about creating your own opportunities, that actually was the very first thing that got my attention uh, to Canon. It was actually the 1DC, I will, I will expand on it because I know your photography uh, audience will be interested. It was the 1DC camera, which was the cinema version of the 1DX um, okay. Mark II, or maybe Mark I actually. So the 1DC camera came out in, I, I think I get this right, late 2012. Um, and it was, uh, you know, only a few years into the DSLR revolution for, for filmmakers using DSLRs. I mean, the 5D Mark II was the very first one in late '08, and about four years later, I'm pretty sure it was 2012, the 1DC came out, and this was the first 4K stills camera that had 4K video recording. And it was all very fresh at the time. You know, it's, 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 4K is quite ubiquitous now, but, you know, it wasn't that long ago where it was red cameras had produced a 4K camera and that was about it. And Canon produced one of the very first, it was certainly the first DSLR with 4K video camera, uh, video recording. And I was very lucky to convince Canon, didn't have a huge relation, uh, relationship there yet, but they can, they had one of only six model, six units in the world. And they lent me the camera for a couple of days and I went and filmed. I thought, you know, maybe we can pull still images from the 4K video. It was just something of interest that I'd thought about maybe read someone, uh, possibly it was Philip Bloom or someone talking a little bit about it. But we, we got our hands on a, a unit and I went and sh created on my own bat just a sort of a 10 minute, quite elaborate behind the scenes of, of, of actually taking the camera. Take, I took it to the zoo, I took it to other places, we took it to a wedding, we took it to a fashion shoot. Um, and it was all self-funded and I created a 10 minute piece which I was gonna put on YouTube and just exploring could we print stills from the video. And we did print stills uh, at, at a lab in Sydney and. And it was just an interesting sort of side project because I was just genuinely interested. In, oh, I didn't actually have motive, uh, motives beyond making something fun and cool at the time. And, and it got the attention of Canon and that led to them asking me to produce some other content for them. Um, so getting back to Darren, this assignment came up to go and shoot, I think, six profile films of just simply an interview with each of these um, a Canon Masters in a, in, a, in a studio, talking head, microphone, light it, talk about the career, put some photographs on top, very simple uh, assignment uh, really and quite standard. And when I was given the budget, which was very small, um, but appropriate for, for the type of shoot it was, um, I went to Darren and, and, and said, look, you know, we had talked a year, over a course of a year, it'd be great to go and film. He'd known I'd done some underwater filming in the past to go to Tonga. And so I turned around to Canon after talking to Darren and said, look, don't pay any more money 
maybe they paid a flight, but it was pretty much, I took the budget, the meagre budget, and, and asked them, look, well, we'll prefer to shoot this in the field. And they said, oh, great, if you want to, you know, we don't have any more budget than that. And I said, it's fine. So I went and I went to Tonga with Darren for 10 days, swimming with the humpbacks. I took a friend of mine who was using very early drone technology, Toby Dijon, who, and um, he, we, we flew this hexcopter. I'm sure it was the first drone to fly over whales in, in Tonga, um, possibly some of the first drone whale photography in the world uh, we were doing. It was 2013. Um, and we came back and we produced a six, seven minute film on Darren. So he, here is Cannon who had an expectation of a talking head about photography. Some of Darren's photographs would just be appearing on the screen to suddenly what we delivered them was a sort of seven or eight minute you know, segment that could have been out of Tales by Light where he was immersed with the whales during heat runs and we're flying over the top with a drone and, and, you know, he's telling his story, his passion for photography, but it's showing him in the field living his, living his craft. Um, and it was, you know, they were bowled over. It was some of the best, it was some of the best performing content they'd ever produced. And they were, and then of course, you know, we had to follow it up with the other photographers. So we did a whole series of these shorts, um, for them and they were very successful. And uh, in so much so they asked me to speak at a, spe a special event at, at the Opera House um, where they had some other, sort of some of their best corporate clients. And I, was, I, gave, a, I gave a talk and we showed the, we showed, we screened the film at the Opera House and that was all fabulous. The idea had been in my mind for a while that we could p potentially expand it bigger than that. And it was actually Art Wolf, the, the, I guess the idea the um, the confidence I'd spent a bit of a time with Art Wolf, who many of your listeners will know, uh, you know, celebrated American photographer, and he had a show called Travels to the Edge. So that was a show that is similar to Tales by Light. It predates uh, Tales, where he travelled around the world, um, being art and doing you know across the many subjects. So I can't take full credit for the idea. Um, I've got to give credit to to Art's series, which was definitely inspiration for Tales. And the little time I'd spent with Art, he was very complimentary in the way that I operated. And he, he said, you know, you should, you should, we should work together in some way. So there was a few stars aligning. So with the confidence of the shoots with, with Canon, with Darren, um, and then this concept of a, a, a expanding it to a bigger show, I presented it to Canon. And because that they had the confidence, I guess, in me and what I could produce, they gave me the opportunity, which was really unorthodox way to make a series. Uh, so I guess technically you'd call it brand-funded television. And the, the fabulous thing um, is Jason, who was, you know, quite a visionary, really, leader at Canon. He could totally see that it was not, it couldn't be cluttered with too much technical, uh, or very little actually. And, and even, even the cameras themselves, he was quite aware that, look, the, Canon, the cameras, yes, there'll be Canon cameras being used, but we won't be overt about it. Let's make real content. And because of that, um, we were so aligned in that way. You know, National Geographic didn't consider it a, you know, a promo um, series. It was, it was very much, it, it could be viewed on its own merits. I did tell you I'd say a short version of it. That wasn't very short, but anyway, there's a bit of context on the, on the genesis of Tales by Light for anyone who's interested. Yeah, no, that was fascinating. It was, but I was just thinking, you know, it's a testament to your bravery and courage, Abe, that you would choose photographers that, you know, you haven't interviewed and see where they can talk on camera because most people like me, as you know, the only time you could get me to talk was in the dark in a tent. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, 
it you know you could have come horribly unstuck but you didn't because of your sort of generosity and you're so easy to work with but but i think also people trust yeah but i i think what what actually makes it work abe is that people have confidence because you've got great talents great abilities and and they show without you being ostentatious or a show-off and i think that Builds, you know, then it all comes together and, and mm. people sort of buy into that. And I think they then feel confident we can work with this. But just tell me who approached Nat Geo because the bits are coming together. You did that little bit, you know, to see whether you could do stills, a little bit of mm. your, your own sort of thing around a Canon camera. Then Canon got interested, Darren Jew, then, you know, that whole branding thing or the potential for Canon seeing that it was a really good opportunity for them. Who approached Nat Geo? Where, where, where did that come in? Uh, that was more of a, that was certainly Canon t- takes credit for that. And, and um, uh, they thought that, look, it could go to a, a network in Australia, but obviously the National Geographic brand is strong and, and they felt, uh, and so did National Geographic Australia, uh, felt that there was a great alignment there. Um, so it was wonderful for the, so it, you know, they were um, able to strike a bit of a, a deal for it to screen in Australia, but I don't think it, it didn't go beyond Australia, New Zealand or National Geographic. It was still a very localised show until <clears throat> we, um, you know, I actually said to Canon, look, it'd be nice to see if we could get some legs outside of the country, but that was never part of their, the remit of the show. It was never um, an ambition for Canon because um, people may not know, but all the Canons around the world are all subsidiaries of the global brand, but they are very independent. Obviously, they have certain uh, ways of operating under the brand, but Canon Australia and New Zealand, um, they they look after their own territories. So Canon Europe or Canon, uh, you know, Canon um, um, India have real, not, not a huge amount of um, connection between Canons, but that didn't stop us actually trying to get it screened on either television or streaming was just becoming a thing really. Netflix had been around a while, but it was still not, you know, there certainly weren't any other competitors for Netflix at the time. Um, mm. Cut a long story short this time, uh, it got, we got it in front of Netflix through a distributor. And I think one thing that I've always been a big, you know, it, yes, it's story first, but I also do love technology. And I think if you're going to go to the huge effort to go to these places, you should take the best equipment possible to record, whether it's the, the lenses and the recording equipment. Of course, everything is important, but always go for the best because, you know, you, you, you want, yes, things will get dated. Stories, good stories, hopefully won't get dated. Um, or they're at their mark in time anyway. Um, but image, the imagery has is, is always been really important to me too. And, and, and we really pushed ourselves into 4K very early. Even the drones we were flying, we were flying at the very beginning, we were flying 1DC cameras strapped on the drone just to give us the 4K uh, aerial um, imagery. Mm. And because we did that effort uh, and we, we bought a red camera very early, the series was in 4K and that certainly did help us. That, I think if it had been a HD series, it may not have got onto Netflix, but we could, we could deliver them 4K masters of, of a series in you know, 2014, which is, you know, it's almost 10 years ago now. And so that was a, a huge, huge win. And of course, that, the kudos of, of, for Canon Australia to get this series homegrown in Australia, you know, only 20 odd million people in Australia. Now it's on a Netflix platform to hundreds of millions of people around the world. Let, you know, and of course, uh, that was f- fabulous because of the belief and then for the f- people we featured, you know, what a wonderful thing to be able to give back um, You know, no one went into that expecting it to be on Netflix. Maybe the third series. Yes, but for the first series um, and, and the messaging Whatever the messaging was in each film could be shared to a huge audience and, and so 
you'll probably notice, I mean, you know that wildlife and the natural world is, is um, it's sort of my playground where I like to tell the stories. And so um, all of those conservation messages could reach a much bigger audience. So that was, that was fabulous for me. Yeah, and you know, the feedback, I mean, even to this day, the number of people who come onto Instagram or messages for email saying how much they love the series, it really touched a chord. And I think, again, something you mentioned, which is so important, which is great production values, because you were embracing cutting edge technology, whether it was 4K, whether it was drones, whatever it was. And, and I think that's so important for people, you know, don't go in there um, you know, with stuff that is shoddy, which isn't absolutely your best, if you can, you know, it's not just about the equipment, we know that, but it's hugely important. Mm. I'm just going to mention something that I saw, I read in an interview you've done previously that talks about having a people sense when surrounding yourself with different cultures. What advice would you give any photographer or videographer seeking to capture content, content in unfamiliar countries? And one of the reasons I'm mentioning that is because there's an ugliness at times to photography and photographers when they go into new areas absolutely rabid about getting the shot and whether it's with wildlife or people it can it can be pretty unpleasant and, mm. and as you know we're sort of trying to address some of that what are your feelings on on that whole area so it's particularly with mm. indigenous cultures and going into unknown territory yeah well i think the best way to think about it is that if someone was coming to meet you um in your home and walk through the door with a camera around their neck and, and, and literally picking up, you know, holding the camera up and taking photos as they're shaking a hand, they're taking photographs as they walk through into your living room and, and shooting the surrounds of your property um, at first meeting, it would be pretty unsettling um, to say the least. So I think what's always worked um, for me, whether it's an indigenous community um, that you're meeting, uh, First Nations um, area, or it's simply just a new part of the world. You know, it could be it could be a, a you know a more of a you know it, whoever it is. I mean, people are people, and we you know we are. Um, there's so much common commonality between all of us, and um, I think respect respecting the person you're meeting and actually building some rapport is so important first. And in fact, so much so that you know you know certainly in um, when we've done stories in Australia um, and meeting First Nations communities going and even doing an entire trip without a camera we've done that before that seems very strange um, and maybe you have something with you just to take some reference stills but certainly it hardly comes out of the backpack uh, for the first trip and it's just simply meeting people and spending a bit of time that's so important um, and if you don't have the luxury of doing a completely separate trip to meet people at least for the first period of time is just cameras are down and I think a lot more people would have more success if they sort of thought about that a little bit more, um, and it, it just it just plays in so well. And finding you know obviously learning bits of language helps as well. If there's language barriers, learning some languages works in any culture. Um, people love the attempt <laughs> of giving them the respect to learn a few words, and that can just help tremendously as well. But just I think yeah, just being sensitive to those things that they're, they're probably my top tips. I think that crosses over though as well to not just people, it's whatever yes. you're taking photographs of. That respect. That respect and, and really getting to understand whether it's a, a, the bird that you're mm -hmm. shooting or the lion. It doesn't really mm -hmm. matter understanding their behavior, understanding what is mm -hmm. their, their comfort zone mm -hmm. for you to 
to be with and, and shoot and, and sitting quietly yes. until the creature, the person, it doesn't really matter, is comfortable with your presence. I mean, I don't know why we've lost that but sense I, of... Yeah, do you, do you think it's partly because of the way people travel? I mean, maybe things have changed a little bit, but I think maybe in the opposite way, since COVID, there is a huge hunger mm. for people to get back out and travel again and experience things. But there is certainly, and I mean, we see this in the Mara, there's certainly a bit of a rush, quick fix, mm. ticket off, I've mm. seen it, e even to the extent, you know, of the selfie sort of dilemma, which is there's sometimes you get the feeling the person's more interested in showing they were there than mm. actually appreciating being there. Mm. And how to, I, I think a lot of it comes down to not just sensitizing the visitors, but actually that the whole industry, mm. whether it's the photographic industry, whether it's the tourism industry, starts to take responsibility for how can we, let's say we're a tour operator, a camp owner, a camp, a lodge owner, mm. how can we, you know, really say to people, whatever you're going to be doing, if it's a safari, this is something hugely special. Mm. And we want you to have an amazing trip but we want you to just understand there are various obligations here for you personally, mm. which we would ask you to buy into. Mm. And, and that's what we created, what we've shared with you, the safari yes. etiquette. And we use that word very purposefully, mm. etiquette, a sense, you know, maybe it'll go straight over some people's heads, but the idea of a politeness in, mm. in, as you say, you come into somebody's house, you don't point the camera at them, you greet them. And in fact, I'll, I'll give you an example of how quickly and easily within our society, you can forget the niceties of life. So I go in, I'm waiting for Angie, and I'm sitting down to have a cup of coffee, and a gentleman uh, waiter comes up to, to, to serve me, and straight away, I, I, I don't greet him, I don't say, hi, how's it going, you know, whatever it is, how's your family? I just bang right in there, a little bit like being in New York, and the guy just wants to know what you want. You want, to, want it with, with, with uh, mayonnaise or, or without? You know, I don't want a conversation. That incredible, it's, it's not good manners. We need to somehow mm. try and recultivate <laughs> just being nice and, mm. and, and, you know, not just seeing it as entertainment. Yes. Yeah, well, I think it's right. It can, it can apply to so much of life, can't it? I think it's, um, yeah. Oh, Abe, you're a great networker. Boy, do I know that. You're very entrepreneurial. You're full of ideas and with the drive and determination to make things happen. We've seen it. Now, can you see yourself moving into another industry or is photography and storytelling too close to your heart for that? Do you ever think to yourself, I want to do, do something, you know, it's the entrepreneurial side of it sometimes. Would you really like to build a huge business or do something different or hmm. what, see Abe in 10 years, 20 years time? Doing um, the same thing? Well, I, I think n nothing is, nothing, hugely different is, is, is clawing at me at the moment. But I think, you know, life's, you know, I guess I've had a couple of careers to date um, already. And so I, I still think it'll be in the creative realm and probably to do with film because it's just, I love the craft and the medium of it and, and, and the power of film. So, but yeah, I could, I could see myself moving into other areas. One thing I don't aspire to is I, I, I do know there are production companies that have, you know, five series going on at once or multiple features and lots of directors and a huge empire of people creating fabulous 
output, but I don't I don't look at that and aspire to, to, to be running something like that. Um, and not to say that I could actually do that either, but I don't look at that and, and think, gosh, that's what I want to do. I really do like the um, the small team, um, as you know, and, and just you know working with people that sometimes expands out. I've been working on a series now with with you know more than the handful of people that I'm often working with, but I love the relationships of, of um, a small team and the trust and the experience and the, the, the language, the, the silent language you can build up with people that you work with. I mean, of course, there's no stronger um, relationship than, than the, the ones staring back at me on this podcast mm-hmm. that, that, that you have. Um, I just, I, I, I'm drawn to that. So I don't really see myself, I, I was very fortunate to work on a, to, to get, to, to be an extra on some big Hollywood movie sets when I was a teenager, doing a bit of extra work um, when I was studying. Uh, so I was on Superman Returns and um, you know some big films that were being made in, in Australia at the time, Stealth. Um, uh, and so they were, they were great in, in, in as far as they sort of told me what I didn't want to go into. And I've got some friends that have been extraordinarily successful in, in, in the features world, uh, cinematographers and directors, but you know, th- scripted theatrical films, as much as I love great films, theatrical films, it was great to be in that environment and to see hundreds of people working on a set and the very slow moving um, beast that is a, a, a big Hollywood style film set. And I just, there was no interest, you know, I realized that that was not for me. And so it galvanized my sort of determination to do small scale, uh, small team documentaries um, and, and films. So that was really good. And that's why I say to people, you've got to take every opportunity when you're younger and starting out. Don't be too specific because even opportunities that don't lead to anything, you can take something away from it, almost every experience. And so just say yes to things, you know, within reason, of course, as long as they're safe and there's no exploitation going on, then, you know, go and have as many, take as many opportunities as possible. And you don't know who you're gonna meet at these things too. You, you meet people that leads to something else and, and the butterfly effect of that. So, um, you know, all the things, I don't have any regrets professionally in my career of, of things that I've done. I only probably regret things I didn't take up, you know, a couple of things, you know, we all have regrets. I think you're delusional to think, not that I dwell on regret, but, you know, looking back at things that I may have turned down, you also don't know what they'll lead to. Um, so yeah, I, I love to take opportunities, and uh, and then it's then there is a there's a discipline of knowing okay this is not working, and maybe it's time to shelve that for now, um, and hopefully you, you you pick up some experience along the way. So um, yeah. But Eve, can you ever imagine not picking up a camera? Um, yeah, it's a really interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, it's not really, but I think you know our whole lives are a series of. Um, yeah, because of the director, producer. You oh, know, not, okay. The question there. Yeah. So the pick. Well, it's a good. What I mean, could you me, settle for for not for having somebody else shoot everything? Yeah, that's a good. I mean, I did mention the editor interest when I was younger, but then that was very early days, and and probably since my late teens, the camera was became my thing, and I and I wanted to be a cinematographer, and I loved the moving image, and directing and producing was not really a goal. But they became something that I ended up doing because I wanted to go and tell the stories and be involved and film, I guess, the things that I wanted to do. And if you are directing and producing, then you're determining uh, usually what the subjects are. So it began that way. As I'm now a dad, um, a life of a cinematographer three times over, you know, producing is, is fabulous because I can see a career where I don't necessarily have to be in the field I really hope that I always get 
some time in the field through the year, but you know, priorities change and I don't want to be a traveling, like, you know, you know me, you knew me from some years before kids and you know, I was on the road sometimes with my wife, Jen, and sometimes not, but for several months of the year, well, you just can't do that with young kids. And there are cameramen out there that I know that have been regretful of not getting into producing because they've, they've coming to a later start stage of their life. Maybe their health is not as, they're not as fit as they used to be, but if they are just a cameraman, um, and fabulous cameramen or camera women at that, uh, they don't have an, an ability to stop. If they're not in the field, if it's wildlife filmmaking, that, you know, I'm in Bristol here at the moment, this is sort of the, the mecca for wildlife filmmaking. If you're not doing that, you're not earning money. But if you can produce, well then particularly COVID taught us this, you can be anywhere in the world and produce and to be writing and to be sending out teams uh, into the field. So I do like that, you know, I'm sort of, I've got a, uh, a back-end part of my career that if I never, if, if there does become a time where I don't go into the field, that I can still tell stories. So I think that's really, mm. um, um, you know, important for me. For I, I do want, you know, family for me is so important without digressing too much. And I think there are, sadly, the film industry is sort of littered with divorce, you know, not to try to water it down, like where people are just, mm. you know, it is a it, it can be a tough industry that requires you know, people going above and beyond and, and staying, whether it's work on theatrical films or, or any other form of filmmaking. So there are a few exceptions to the rule, people who work together with their partners, but if you are required to be away from home a lot, then it, it can be um, a huge unbalance that can, that can come from that. When the kids, the, the three boys grow up, I was thinking, would Jen love to come back into the industry with you and to continue with her career of sound? It's not really something you probably can do with a growing family, the two of you, is it? Yeah, I mean, possibly. I mean, I guess, you know, I, I do, we're both parents that, that don't want to force any career onto our kids, you know, we really just want to foster, give them all opportunities and let them be whoever they want to be. And if, if it happens to be in, in the world that we've been fortunate to work in, then I'd be thrilled, but also be thrilled if they find any other career that they're passionate about, as long as they're happy and and, uh, and and successful people uh, holistically in whatever life they want to choose. I think that's important. Um, but yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think it'd be I'd be also thrilled if, if if any of the boys wanted to you know do what we have been doing, and um, you'd you'd hope to pass on as much information, you know, as much knowledge as you can. And um, but yeah, we're still a few years away. They're all pretty they're pretty tiny still, which is which is fabulous. And I you know I do tell them. Well, I tell the oldest one, Harry, who's five, I just say, you know, don't wish to be six or seven or eight. You're only five once. Just be five, you know, don't be looking ahead. Um, childhood is over so quickly, although, you know, some of you feel like they drag forever. Suddenly you're an adult and, you know, those years are so precious. And I'm sure you will take them travelling like you did yeah, yourself. Yeah, like when you're you know, that dude. There'll yeah. be an opportunity for yeah. you. Absolutely, yeah. I to go off and just take some time out with the boys and... You know, show them the world that oh, you... Oh, that, and, that, and that's the most exciting element for me. I can't wait. And we're not far away from doing trips. We've done, you know, easy trips already, you know, but uh, travelling around Australia and, and other parts of the world, I, I, I can't wait to, to sort of just expose them to the world, good and bad. You know, I think, that, you know, some of the places that have been um, where people live it really tough, I think it's really important to go to those places too and, and you know, mm. make them realise how lucky they are. <laughs> so that's, yeah. that, that'll be part of it.
Now, what I was going to ask, Abe, was the power, you mentioned the word power, and I thought to ask you, I mean, do you think that filmmaking is probably one of the most powerful ways of telling a story? Mm -hmm. oh, absolutely, in yeah. The I mean, without... We have, we have to change so much mm. that it's got... We watched something last night about coffee. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it touched me so deeply. You know, it's things you just don't know yeah. until a filmmaker mm. brings it to you mm. and you think, oh, my goodness, I wish I knew that 10 years ago. Mm. And the power of film to me is, is well, we, the visual sense is so exquisitely impactful on mm. all your emotions. And I, when I look at the things you've done, each one I've seen has had a message and it's been powerful for change. And I would imagine that's quite addictive. Yeah, somebody absolutely. Like I mean, I think it, it is, um, it is incredibly powerful, probably the most powerful um, communication tool um, there is. Um, and, and sound being half of the medium. In fact, we all think it's part more than half because look, this this podcast proves it you know people are listening to this and it's just sound and they're taking yes would they get a little bit more if they could see our faces right now yes there's a lot of obviously um so much communication is non-verbal but you for most for the most part films can exist um uh, can't really exist without the sound so it, it's the, the combination of, of moving pictures and sound um this incredible craft that we have to work with is is powerful and it's a power that you sort of, you should acknowledge, you know, not forget how powerful it is for good or bad. You know, we've learned that through history, the, the, the power of propaganda and film. And we're feeling that again, even now. And, you know, this whole debate around AI generated content and films and how powerful for good and, and for evil that will be. And that's probably a subject for a whole nother podcast with someone far more um, qualified to speak about that. But it, it's... Um, that's how we're built. We are communicators through sound and pictures, and and so that's how um, it's just a means of communicating. And yes, books can be very powerful, but it, it, the access to it requires more effort on the on the on the user. Um, and um, and photography can be powerful, yes, but you know the the medium we work in is is incredibly powerful. And that's why, yeah, I, I'm drawn to to subjects that. Uh, yes, interesting to me and obscure and all those things, but I, I, but also that change, positive change, may be required, and and uh, hopefully the film can bring a bit more awareness to it. Um, that's I want to yeah. work in that space. Yeah, I mean, I think you've all, always given a sense that you you feel a great sense of responsibility for you know you love the planet and nature and the environment and all the wonderful things that you've seen some of the things that we've shared, but I do get a sense that you really feel there's a, there's a bit of a mission and a, in terms of a responsibility that you're rather like Angie says to me, you know, it's no good anymore just going out there and taking pretty pictures and, and, and sitting with a bunch of lions and thinking it's wonderful and aren't we lucky. Um, we feel that, and I don't know if it's a question of getting older, you're obviously much younger, but there is a sense of urgency that, that we have to, you know, look and see what, how can we try and create information and imagery which makes people change because, and, and this, you know, what we were watching last night about the coral reefs and, and it was extraordinary with the camera work and stuff and actually quite interesting how it was 
the moving picture. So it was people in vision telling the story of the dying of the coral reefs and the Great Barrier Reef, all the stories you know about. But what was quite interesting too was at some point they would stop the moving image and they would just hold you with a still image of a particular piece of coral and then they would overlay it with another still image as such, you know, a frame from the videography, which just starkly showed you from beauty and colors to this just bleached dead piece of coral. But I think the thing also, and this came out, which was what Angie was also thinking about was, I sort of get the feeling that there is a temptation for television to perpetuate the myth of untamed wilderness, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, whether it's book publishers, and I know we've had it with our books of, oh, you can't say that, people get upset, you know, they they, they want to believe in in, in sort of this beautiful, you know, glossy image of nature. And so every time now I watch a serious piece of television about the state of the planet, and at the end of it, I can swear 99 times out of 100, they're going to end with, but it's it's, we can still do something about it. We, we haven't yet stepped over the cliff. Well, I sort of feel we've actually fallen over it. Mm. And even though I understand you've got to give people hope, you know, that, that human tendency towards this innate optimism just to get us through the hardships of life until bang, we're dead. Mm. I get the feeling sometimes when we're not doing right by people when we say, don't worry, we're going to... Because then they're not going to do we're, anything. We're going to fix yeah. it. It's a really... It's a really it's, it's, yeah, how do we deal with that conundrum? It's, a great, you know? it's a great... Um, it's such a top, so topical you bring that up now because I'm working on a on another series um, which I'll come back next year and we can talk more about it. But I can say this much, it's on the world's oceans um, and uh, and the state of the oceans is, is a big part of the series. Um, but, um, but you're right, I, I think for far too long... Um, conservation messages were not, it was sort of a dirty word. People would lose interest, we'll lose viewers. We can't, talk. I mean, I know Paul Nicklin told me recently that um, he's, um, um, he couldn't even mention climate change for a long time. You know, that was not, that was a, a dirty a dirty word for National Geographic. And now, of course, you can't not, if you don't mention climate change, then that's a, a huge problem. Um, but the, um, you, you're right. It's, it's it's a really tricky one because um, if you just tack on the end, but there's hope and things are okay, and does that give people a pass? You know, I think um, you know. I mean, for any, maybe it's a bad example, but you know, the the um, the Extinction Rebellion people, particularly in the UK, have got a lot of you know a lot of people upset about the the, the stunts they've been pulling, closing traffic and things, but. And you may not agree, and, and I think there's probably times that, um, you know, I can understand people's frustration with them, but I also can empathise with these young people that are, um, they feel so passionately, and they're probably absolutely right, that it is such an, we are at this such an alarming period of time. If someone's inconvenienced on a road, I'm sorry, but it, we're at that point where the world, the planet is, you know, got the sixth mass extinction going on, the biodiversity crash, climate change, it's just, it is that our house is on fire and you know is that the time to be sort of telling people the house is on fire but it's okay like you know there's the the the, the fire brigade's coming or do you scream and say the house is on fire you got to get out now you've got to do something about it. you've got to have action so yeah it's i don't know the, the complete answer i don't think many, many people have really worked it out um that balance um 
one thing I have heard described though is, is good is that you can you can acknowledge how much is still savable and that is still you know with all the extinction that has happened uh, and that will continue to happen and habitats that have been destroyed um, that's not a reason to give up on what's left and imagine if someone in the 70s someone in the 70s could look back at what was there in the 20s and go gosh you know in the last 50 years we've lost this many rhino across, you know, from 1920 to 1970, and we've only got 200,000 rhino left in, in Africa, and, you know, all hope is lost. Well, then you'd yeah, add another 50 years to that, um, understand how much amazing um, planet we have to save, and that is what should be focused on, and the things that can, actions that can save those uh, environments and those species is, is got to be the focus. Um, so I think that's probably the right mindset. It's probably like... I don't know, a bad example maybe, but if you went into a casino and lost, you know, you had $500 in your pocket and you lost $400, do you just throw the last $100 into a gaming machine or do you walk out with $100? You know, do you just throw it away? Appreciate what you have left. You can't turn back time sometimes with things, but acknowledging what is there and what is what we can save. Um, and on top of that, knowing how resilient nature can be and things can bounce back. What gives me massive hope is rewilding campaigns where they're re you know, rewilding parts of um, you know, Borneo, planting new forests, or there's even rewilding of species in certain areas, bringing back species into areas that have been locally uh, become extinct and how successful some of those things can be. And that is you know, when things can be reversed, um, even if it's small grassroots campaigns, um, that's extremely encouraging. Um, so I think it's it's a balance, but you, you you're right. It can't be sort of a tacked on um, token, you know. But there's hope. I think that gives people too much of a pass, and I think they can go about their day thinking, okay, someone else is handling this, you know. Um, and the other thing I think that is a, can be a shame is that the way that everyone lives it through social media is just sharing a post or changing the color of your icon around your you know instagram photograph or whatever it is feeling like you've contributed you know i think can also give people that a mental pass you know back not long ago you had to take to the streets and you had to you know march um but physical action seems to be being replaced a lot of the time by digital action and yes information sharing is good but I don't think that's enough, you know, I don't think it's enough just to, to read, share a post and, and, and to be able to mentally tick a box. So, um, yeah, but it's an ongoing, um, ongoing question that, that should continue to be looked at. Yeah, I th you think the whole thing of teaching one's children as well, the next generation, Absolutely. it almost should be mandatory and far more done to yes. gather these little ones together, to expose them to nature at a very, very early age. Absolutely. If we did that, then the next generation would be empowered mm -hmm. early and they would love Absolutely. the natural world more than they do now, which is a lot of the younger generation are just mm -hmm. on their computers and they really are disconnected. Yes, yes. And of course, it's a little bit too much to, to sort of, for them, because they don't really understand, they've never been exposed to it. Mm. And I'm such a firm believer in education because what you, you know, a lot of people, they come out here and they, they really, they are ignorant. I, I say mm. that in the nicest mm. possible way. They're ignorant of yeah, behavior. So they do things that are completely crazy. 
But if you then tell them mm. and you explain to them mm. behavior or patterns mm. of nature, they're fully on board suddenly. You know, they're like, oh my goodness, I didn't know. Well, yeah. imagine if you did that to little ones, how powerful the next generation Absolutely. would be. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I think that the the thing that, like you said, I mean, the analogy of the five hundred dollars and you lose four hundred. Well, actually, that is a disaster, and one shouldn't forget that you did lose four hundred, but you still have a hundred left. I think we could say to our little grandson, uh, you know, and it would it would fall on deaf ears. It would have no relevance to say to him, "You should have." When he's thinking the Mara is the bee's knees, and he's absolutely bursting with enthusiasm at his first leopard or looking at a pride of lands or seeing a river crossing, um, you're, you're dead right. And th this is the only answer to people, which is you don't know what the future holds. It's looking, looking pretty horrible based on what we've done so far. There is a movement towards waking everybody up. Let's not try and sort of, you know, make it look better than it is, but let's appreciate how much we've still got mm -hmm which we can do something about. And, and I think that's a very, very important thing. Yeah. We should ask about being a dad and how he as a dad is going to bring up his three little ones to appreciate this extraordinary planet. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I mean, I think um, you're right. You're so right, uh, Angie, when you say education is, is the key and exposure and, you know, we, it's become a bit of a cliche, but a good cliche is, you know, you can only care about things you know about. So that's obviously part of the reason I do uh, or tell the stories that I want to tell. But also I think you've got to, I think we all have to constantly remind ourselves that if we are, you know, we don't want to be preaching from a high box, we can all be doing better. And if we're, if you're a photographer and you like to travel, then really being mindful of your impact um, mm. and not thinking, well, I'm doing my bit for the planet so I can, you know, buy all my vegetables wrapped in plastic and, you know, drive when I could walk the bike. And so just being mindful that, you know, it's important to set an example. And, and yes, the individual, uh, sometimes people think, you know, I, I'm not, what, is, what difference does it make if I do that? And that's, that's part of the huge, enormous challenge, isn't it, with with getting people to change ways. And it, and it has changed tremendously over the last, so much more has to happen. And a lot of the climate decisions are more of a governmental level. Like they have to, new policies have to change industry because you know, we all know so much of the emissions is through industry. And, and um, but, it, but it is important on the individual level because it's just the whole mindset of, if you're growing up with the right mindset of treating nature and that everything is has value. And you know, when we find a little spider in the house or a, a, a slug we pick him up and we take him out and we take him into the forest and we put him somewhere because you know just just that fundamental idea that everything has value can permeate through all decisions and then i think that's that's a mindset that i'm trying to give the boys from a, from an early age and you should never forget the power of influence that you have on the other people around you, you know it's the whole sort of effect that, you know, if people see that you're going the extra mile to do something. I mean, I just went to the supermarket. I mean, I hate buying, you know, anything wrapped in plastic. I mentioned it before, you know, and it can be really hard to avoid, particularly in the UK still. They've made huge strides for plastic bags, but then everything, you buy you buy peppers in the bag and there's three, you can't buy peppers singly. They're all wrapped in plastic. Or when you see bananas wrapped in plastic, I mean, for God's sake, a banana's got its own packaging, you know, and, and, and there's still uh, that going on, but you, 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 so it requires a bit of extra effort all the time. But other people, you, you shouldn't forget your influence if you're with someone else and you make a decision. You might 
influence that other person to, oh gosh, he's making that effort, I might make that effort. So it's not just your impact, but it's the, but the, the, the impact that that ripple effect can have on other people, and that's when big th- changes happen. Um, and, and I'm always, you know me, I'm never shy to be vocal about something that I'm not happy about, and I, I, I will, you know, respectfully point things out to people if I, if I've, you know, see someone still using plastic bags. That that day's gone, but I know for a long time that was just a small little thing that I would, you know, I'd go to the local local supermarket where in Australia when it hadn't become mandatory, Australia really dragged the feet on plastic bags, and you know, some shops, some chains were not using them voluntarily. Um, you know might seem like a little one but i think it's just the mindset of of doing that and and the latest project i'm doing too we've had to travel but we're offsetting our production and that's happening more and more i mean i think there's no excuse if you're working particularly in the natural history world not to offset your entire production there's lots of calculators to do that and then you can you know because i think it's highly hypocritical to be traveling around particularly if you're doing climate change work and flying everywhere uh, to do that and yes some travel is required but maybe not all of it and one good thing to come out of COVID um, and I, I hope I know people don't like talking about that anymore we've sort of come through COVID but it forced the industry the filmmaking industry to use a lot more local crews um, mm. because you couldn't travel and get access and opportunities were given first of all it's fa- fabulous for aspiring filmmakers in the wildlife uh, realm around the world to get a break because Traditionally, that those breaks never came. I mean, maybe fixers on the ground would get jobs on a BBC production, but the idea of a cameraman from New Zealand or you know parts of Africa getting an opportunity to shoot for the production was sort of just didn't happen. But the 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 blocks to access to get to parts of the world and still the big desire, in fact, even more so to produce natural history content because people were so cooped up at home was there, and so it forced the industry to start employing local uh, productions. And and I did that too on a, on a film that is coming soon and so that was fabulous for opportunities in 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 parts of the world but also uh you know a lot of the time locals had innate knowledges of the of the subjects as well um and so and of course the impact you know that all of that impact of travel could be reduced um and i hope that that doesn't go away and i think there is a bit of a movement now that it's been proven that you can employ more people in the field you can send you don't need to send 12 people to an area you can send three or four and, lo- and hire the best local people you can. Uh, and it obviously it works better in some roles than others. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's, that's one example for, for my industry. Yeah, and, and you know that, I'm, I'm really glad you brought it round to that fact because here in Kenya and Africa, there's, there's obviously and necess- necessarily uh, a huge push towards addressing you know, stories told by local people mm-hmm. about their culture and celebrating their wildlife. And that brings me to the final question is, you know, how can the big production companies like Nat Geo, BBC, mm-hmm. um, you know, these kind of content creators ensure that the extraordinary, wonderful, powerful, you know, knowledge giving material reaches the audiences in some of the most poor countries in the world where some of the greatest biodiversity is mm. and where everybody's hoping it will be conserved. I mean, how do we ensure that the, the big companies don't just come in, hit and run, got the material, go out, shown on BBC, shown mm. on Nat Geo, whatever it is, and the very people yeah. where the content was created are left saying, well, what's all this about the big cats or the yeah. this? Or, I think it's a how, really, how, that's a really good point. Well, I think, I mean, it could come two ways. It could come from self-imposed, um, you know, mandate within 
big companies, mm-hmm. you'd hope you companies would start a program of making sure, it may go, go, go against the business model, but making sure that local communities see the content. Um, you know, I, we've been involved in, in small scale screenings, you know, setting up a, a cinema tent and think that can be fabulous, but it's very, it reaches a very small uh, audience. And, and what's more important is using the terrestrial television um, network that is that exists so i think and and maybe some countries might start demanding it on the permits you know if you're coming into a country that the permit just requires yep. fine we can come into you can come in and to band of gar and film the tigers but to do that the permit requires that a, that a copy is made available or, you know and not token it has to be broadcast on on local television in that area that could be a great initiative and i'm sure if it was just it's probably something that people haven't they're probably just brushed over that and haven't thought about it. But I think if you explain it like the, the way that you passionately do too, I think most people recognise the importance of that. Um, so I, I, I'm all for uh, that initiative for sure. Yeah, because you've got to jump in there before the deal's made with the big people, the producers, mm-hmm. the distributors, the networkers, because otherwise, as we've known from personal experience, mm-hmm. trying after the fact to get yeah. material shown on local television, you run into the brick wall of, but actually we've already got distributors yeah. and they're going to be upset and you just think something's wrong here. But it's great that, that I think that is mm-hmm. going to change. A, it's been amazing to talk to you. I wish we could have talked about yeah. some of those projects, oh, you know, yeah. math watering projects. I know they're going to be absolutely incredible, but, you know, it's been wonderful not only to work with you here in Africa on Big Cat Tales, uh, and, and, you know, I think you've been part of our transformation too, because we see ourselves at this point in our career much more as educators. Mm-hmm. When Angie's talking about getting to the next generation, whether it's with our ebooks, whether it's with our podcast series, the Sacred Nature Initiative, we're really, really trying to address giving back mm. and presenting material so as it gets to people yeah. far and wide. So thank you for your inspiration. Love, Love to Jen and the yes. boys uh, and hope to talk to you soon. Thank you guys. Again. Absolute pleasure. And yet yeah, I'll, I'll have me back anytime. It's been wonderful. And um, and yeah, um, I've got so many fond memories of working with you guys too. And, and it will not be the last time we're going to find another project to do down the track. Thank you so much. Thanks guys. See you later. Bye. Bye.